passion. It's what drove Malai Ufakout from her humble beginnings in Storm Lake, Iowa, to the softball diamond at Drake University. Passion to me is living your life with your whole heart. After graduating and entering the workforce, her passion for competitive sports would lead her to found and compete on a roller derby team, the Des Moines Dames. And live a life where there's no fear and to take risks. Malai's greatest passion in life just might be instilling it in others through her work as a life coach, IT recruiter, and with her newly earned master's degree in mental health counseling. Really I don't good. have I don't have a cool background like you yet. I see my friend Linda on there though too. Yeah. Oh, you yeah, know Linda. Linda? Oh I yeah. Iowa, right? Well, and she went to Drake the same time I did, and okay. um, <clears throat> so we we all hung out. You know how softball players and basketball players. So nice. Yeah, you should you update just... that with Indiana though. Oh yeah, that's true. This is old. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, they just that's right. We got to do that. They won the Big Ten championship and everything. Oh yeah, yep. Yeah. Yep, they did. And, and, you know, I was actually at the Iowa game versus Indiana where Caitlin Clark made that last three-point shot oh. with my daughter. It was like, it was nuts, but it was good. It was cool. All right. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of C4 Podcast, Southeast Asian Athlete Achievement Through Adversity. My name is Coach Andetka. I'm here with my co-host, John Messina. If you haven't already, please like and share our uh, Facebook page, uh, Loud American Sports Hall of Fame and C4 Podcast. We're also on Instagram, Loud American Sports. If you follow our YouTube channel, please like, uh, comment, and subscribe if you could. Uh, we have an amazing guest today, and uh, I will let my co-host, John, introduce her. Yeah, we're very excited about t today's interview. What we find interesting is, Co, we got to start feeding our kids some of that Iowa corn because if you've been following this show, if you follow the Lao American Sports Hall of Fame folks, we have one person coming out of Iowa after another. We just had a Navy SEAL, Tron Sipitsai on. Um, he's from Iowa. You know, we had an interview with pilot Krista Atwood. Um, she lives in Florida now, but originally from Iowa. Justin Ponksavon, the Paralympic medalist. Scott Fadevong, pro football player and Drake University alumni. Linda Sayavangchan, Big Ten basketball coach, Drake University alumni. Joseph Donarat. Drake soccer player. He's in the Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, so a lot of Drake. And then even Jackie Siason, the Cornhole Pro, not technically from Iowa, but basically she lives in Sioux City, just like on the edge that's in Nebraska. And today we have another both Iowa resident and Drake University alumni, Malai. She's going to be introducing herself in a minute. She comes to us out of Storm Lake. Um, just to set the stage for those of you who have never heard of Storm Lake, which I'm guessing is a lot of you, it's a small town um, kind of in the far western side of Iowa. It centers around a couple of uh, food processing plants, a turkey plant, a hog plant, and most of the people there work in the agricultural or food processing industry. Um, a lot of Lao people got their start in that industry, like my in-laws working in the slaughterhouses uh, when they first came over because you didn't have to speak English and the jobs paid pretty well, so places like Storm Lake have communities, believe it or not. So anyway, we're going to go ahead and uh, welcome Malai to the show. Malai, why don't you tell us who you are and uh, start at the beginning with your family's journey from Laos, what you know about that in your childhood. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to thank John, you, and Co for 
you know, creating this thing and, and really putting the word out with, you know, some of the, the Lao American athletes, you know, and just kind of the great things that we're doing. But, you know, my journey has, <clears throat> has been an interesting one, obviously, you know, first generation immigrant parents coming from Laos, um, you know, how we really ended up in, in Iowa specifically is, you know, my parents, you had to go to a refugee camp before, you know, to get sponsored to come over to the United States. And so my parents ended up in a refugee camp in Thailand with my brother and then my sister was born there. Um, and then when we came here to Iowa is because my dad's brother actually got sponsored to in, in Des Moines. Um, mm. And then when we got to Des Moines, we got, we got to, we got to Storm Lake from there. Um, but I was actually born in Denison, Iowa. So I was actually born in the United States. Um, went to school, as you as you mentioned, Storm Lake. Um, that's a huge, you know, a huge town of immigrants. And, and, and honestly, that was that time in the 80s when Governor Ray opened up, you know, the state and said, we will take some of these refugees from Southeast Asia. So you'll see a lot of Southeast Asian immigrants really coming into Iowa or really in that <clears throat> in the Midwest West region. And that's really how we ended up here. Um, Storm Lake, I would say, is a, is a special place for me. And that's because, you know, number one, the meatpacking plant. You know, the, my parents didn't speak or write or read English. Um, and t it was IBP back then. Now it's Tyson. Uh, and they started as they started there where, you know, you're you, you don't have to necessarily be able to read and write. You have to just do manual, manual labor. So they ended up there. My mom still works there, actually. So over 30 years working there. Um, wow. I graduated high school in 2001. Um, I, you know. I had a chance to go to Buena Vista University on a full ride scholarship. And I said to myself, I want to get out of the small town. I want to, you know, go, go somewhere else and experience something else. And so that's how I landed at Drake University. And so I've been in Des Moines since when I graduated 2001, I've, I've really made this my home. So that's a little bit about me. Yeah. So just to put in perspective, if you're from Iowa, Storm Lake, Des Moines is considered going to the big city. The big city. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that that's pretty cool. Um, you know, what, what you, year you, was it? What year was it, um, Malai, when your parents, when the family came over from Laos? 1982, just the end of 82, because I was born in 83. Yep. Okay. And your siblings, you said you uh, are brothers, sisters. Are you the youngest? I am the youngest. Yep. Okay. Both my brother and sister live in Omaha. So oh. not too far from Iowa, but they, yep, they, they live in Omaha. Nice. nice. Yeah. yeah. Before we dive into your career as a softball player at Drake, you had quite a bit of adversity growing up. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that with us? I mean, you know, as I mentioned, the governor opened up this the state for you know refugees to come and find a home here. Well, going to this small town Iowa, where it's rural America, you know, we've got farmers everywhere, um, and you've got a, a bunch of people who are not Caucasian. And so, you know, Storm Lake really had to rally around whether or not they're going to accept and welcome these uh, refugees or, you know, they weren't going to help them make it a home. And I, you know, the community really rallied around that. The school systems really rallied around that. And, you know, some adversity there is, is I think sometimes the school system didn't quite, like I, I got put into ESL, you know, when I started going to, you know, school but I, I, you know, I grew up with English around me and, and, you know, most of the time they just didn't know whether or not we needed it, what kind of services we needed. 
but you know, I think that the biggest thing is that, you know, they, they knew we needed it. So how can we get there? So there's a lot of like, there's a lot of trial and error, you know, there was a lot of like, what, how can we support this community and embrace them in those ways? So there's, there's always those challenges. Um, and, oh, you know, the, I guess the, the blessing in disguise is that, you know, there's a lot of refugees that did make it to Strong Lake. So I wasn't the only Asian American, you know, I wasn't the only Lao person, which was helpful. Um, but at the same time, you know, we were also different. And I think that that is something that, <clears throat> I mean, we still, we still look at, you know, color differently still in the United States, but um, there's a lot of almost somewhat proving yourself in a way, right? That you were, you were going to be a contributing member to this like community, to this, to the society. And there, there's a little bit of, you know, continuing to raise the bar a little bit or prove yourself in, in some way. So I think that that was something that um, we had to really learn to navigate kind of on our own too. Yeah, I, I get when you say like proving, like proving ourselves, right? Um, like proving we belong here, okay? And then I, I was a kid. I, I was born in Laos, but came here, and I was four when I came here. And I remember like dealing with the racism and stuff. And but even my parents reinforced it. This isn't our home. We don't belong. Here. That's what I was told by my by my parents. So I really had a hard time like belong you know belonging mm -hmm. yeah. um yeah so i, I totally I, get our culture in general is you know you know a asian the asian population is seen as more of a a model uh a, a, a kind of a model culture with with being able to meld and mold in the united states why because we are taught in our, in our, in our culture is keep your head down, you know, it cause little, cause little ruckus as possible right. and do your job, you know, and that's what our parents did when they came here is they tried to cause as little trouble as possible, keep their head down and just work hard and just be able to have a life. Cause you know, in Laos, they had a life, but you know, two different types of worlds, right? You got the United States yep. versus, versus Laos, totally different worlds. And so coming here, it's, let's, let's, be able to survive here so there, there's a lot of survival mentality with my parents going into this and it's you know <clears throat> standing out whether it have been in sports or you know I took a lot of leadership positions growing up too just like in student council and like different clubs but um that wasn't always something that our culture embraced in that way necessarily like our parents you know my parents I mean I don't know that they understood the value of what we were getting out of the things that we were participating. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, you nailed it. I think my mom, my mom quit uh, school when she was like in third grade, didn't want to go hit up in a tree and said she didn't want to go. And her parents were like, okay. And they put her to work and that's what it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's definitely like in, in their eyes, it was about survival. I guess, you know, in, in the later, you know, generations, but even like now, right. And, and you're seeing like, you know, we're focusing on the athletes, what me and John are doing. And, and we see the athletes, like they're flourishing, right? I mean, now we're starting to, you know, um, make a name for ourselves where we just were in, in the beginning. Yeah, our parents were here just to survive. And it's kind of like what, you know, it was you, for a while you follow in their footsteps until you realize, okay, I want to be different. I don't like this anymore. Right. You know? 
And now we're, now we're trying to figure out how to thrive. Where do we belong in this world of maybe athletes or, you know, in our careers or our profession? Like where exactly do we, can we thrive and, and who's going to allow us that ability to do that? Right. Or not yeah. who, but who who's going to give us that opportunity to do that. But as maybe we all know is that we have to create those opportunities ourselves yeah. and nothing gets handed yeah. to you necessarily. you got to, you got to find those things, but it's like, you, you know, you're starting further back from the starting line. Yeah, for sure. But you, I mean, it's very few people go on to be a division one athlete. It's a fraction of, it's like 1% of all high school athletes. You did it, you know, kind of as, as a, you know, um, Lao American, one of the few that did it that early. Tell us about your softball career at Drake, how you got on the team, what you did there. Yeah. I mean, so my love was always basketball, let's be honest, but I'm 4'11 and three quarters. I don't think I was going to make it as a division one basketball yeah. player, but that was always my love. We had Linda um, on, she's 5'9". So yeah. I know she's 5'9", you know, and, <laughs> and, and the thing is, is that um, to stand out in to become a division one athlete, you have to be seen, you have to be noticed, you have to, you have to be put out there, but that's not something my parents afforded me because they, they simply just didn't know either. And also I didn't know how to do it. So, you know, coming out of, coming out of high school, I knew I wanted to continue to play. I love softball when I was in, you know, when I was in eighth grade in high school or just coming out of middle school you know, I got moved up to the freshman team and then quickly after there, I moved to the JV team. And then quickly after there, I moved to the varsity team and started, you know, as an eighth grader on the varsity team. And I just kind of continued to excel in, in, in softball in particular, but also I didn't know how to get recruited either. You know, I didn't know how to like contact coaches and get them to, to see, you know, what, what I can necessarily do. And my next best thing was, you know, I, I want to play, but I also want to get an education, you know, and that's something that is important regardless of whether or not you play sports, but an education. And so when I went to Drake, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't get recruited. I didn't get anything. I walked onto the team and I showed what I can do. And, but, you know, I was, you know, pinch hitting, pinch hitting, pinch running, um, playing outfield, a couple of the games, my freshman year, did a lot of pinch running as well. But then from there, that the the coach that we had um, left, and then we got a new coach, Coach Calvert, and he came from the University of Iowa. He was an assistant coach for uh, many, many, many years prior to that, and Iowa was a great softball program. He came on board, and you know, I, I, I had to figure out if I wanted to play because I was fast. I had to learn how to slap from the left side that is nothing that I did in, in high school at all. And, you know, so why not do it as your sophomore year in college to, you know, to really prove, you know, your, your skill set and, 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 you know, find that place on the team. And I, and I did it. And so, you know, after that, after my sophomore year, I got scholarship. So I was able to earn scholarship after a couple of years, which was, which was great. You know, it was, it was, not necessarily something that I needed to prove, but it also validated, I would say, my contributions and in, in my skill set. Yeah, that's good. So what what would you say some of your biggest accomplishments on the team were? Energy, I would say. <clears throat> you know, there was um was it my junior or senior? I can't remember, but I had strep throat and we were playing Iowa State that day. And I couldn't get, I couldn't go to the game because I, you know, had strep throat and I just got diagnosed. So I was contagious. 
Um, and I was super bummed because I want, obviously I wanted to be there. I wanted to play, you know, against Iowa state. Um, and we ended up losing. And my coach said, if Malai was here, we would have won this game because there was just, there was a lack of energy. There was a lack of like passion. And I think that was for me, like my, my passion for the game and my love for my teammates and just competing like that's infectious. Um, and I'm not, you know, trying to toot my own horn or, you know, I'm not egotistical by any means, but I also know who I am and, and what I can bring to the table. And so, so if anything, that is probably what I brought to brought to my team. That's, that's awesome. So you graduate from Drake. Tell us a little bit about what you did after that. So I wanted to do, I wanted, I started off in, in public relations and I continue with public relations. I found out it was way too much writing and I didn't necessarily want to write a whole lot. Um, so I, so I got my concentration in human resource management and um, <clears throat> I, I did an internship at UPS. I did recruiting and that kind of led into where, where I, I have been at is uh, talent acquisition. So HR uh, recruiting specifically, I knew I had a knack for people. I knew I knew how to connect with people, you know, easily, I wasn't afraid to talk to anyone or anything. So that is kind of like what naturally led into me in the recruiting world. And then I been in specifically IT. So currently I work for Principal Financial Group and I'm a, a senior sourcing consultant. So I specifically work on our IT, you know, um, talent and, you know, bring in talent for principal. Um, going back a little bit though, with my journey, you know, at, at one point it was, you know, it was what, probably, 10 years into my recruiting, you know, my recruiting professional life. And um, I had started a roller derby team, which I know you're probably going to ask a little, little later. And I really understood like there's there, you know, when I was recruiting, I wasn't asking people like, Oh, you know, what's your skill set? I was asking more than that. Like what drives you, what motivates you? Because people aren't, you can go be a Java developer anywhere, right? And you can, you can, you can do that. But really, why do you want to be, why? Like what, what drives you? And it's, maybe it's family. Maybe it's like this passion, but like, those are things that you have to ask. You know, you have to ask the hard questions to get people, you know, to a place where you can match them, you know, on, on the level of, you know, this company might have an interest in what you're bringing to the table, but you, you know, you're asking more than that. So when I, you know, when I started my roller derby team and I was like, what, am I going to do this my entire life? You know? And I saw, I saw how much roller derby and just creating that changed people's lives. And I was like, can I swear on here? <laughs> I was like, holy crap. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was like, holy shit. Why I could do more than this. You know, I can, I, I, I want to impact people on, and on a, on a, a, a larger scale. So that's what got me into Like literally one day I called my wife and I was like, <clears throat> I, I Googled life coaching and I'm like, that's what I'm going to be. And I called my wife and I'm like, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to become a life coach. And she's like, what do you have to do for that? And do you even know what it, know what it is? I'm like, not really, but I read about it on the internet and I'm pretty sure that's me. So then I started my journey to become a certified life and leadership coach. Life has, has changed a lot during that time. And, you know, while I was still doing, you know, uh, life coaching, still doing IT, IT recruiting as well. You know, I, I found myself, I had my own business as a life coach, but financial obligations as well for family, because we were growing it. We were, you know, about to have our second kid. So I kind of, how am I going to um, structure my professional 
and financial responsibilities in this way that becomes really a lot more sustainable. And that's why I went back to get my master's in mental health uh, therapy and counseling. And I just completed that. So I will eventually move into that here in a little bit, but that's kind of my journey in the professional world. Which can is you a lot. A t- I'm sorry, I'm talking a lot. <laughs> oh, no, 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 we, no, we love it, love it. Um, can you tell, can you give us a timeline on when, let's say you started roller derby or when you, you know, <laughs> when you wanted to pursue life coaching? Yeah, like, so um, it was probably around 2008. I literally saw in our, so we have this newspaper, uh, like a a small publication, not like Des Moines Register, but it was called The City View. And I saw this like ad for this roller derby team who was having some ice cream social. And I'm like, that looks awesome. I wonder what that's about, you know? And I was a rink rat when I was a kid, literally. Like one of my best friends, her grandparents owned the skating rink in town. So I would go every Friday, Saturday night, and I would would skate. And I missed playing like a competitive sport coming out of college. And slow pitch wasn't doing it for me. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not interested in drinking a beer, you know, and, and playing softball. You know, that's just like not my thing. So I saw roller derby. I'm like, I'm going to check that out. So I did. And I'm like, this is this is it. And this is back in 2008. I think really 2000, the end of 2007, when roller derby like started to blow up. And then in 2008, I saw the team and they still kind of beer drank. And I was like, I can't do that. I can't, I can't roll on roller skates and try to, you know, try to, try to, you know, hit people with, with my, with roller skates on. <clears throat> but that year in 2008, I had gone to RollerCon, which is this huge roller derby conference in Las Vegas. And you guys know Vegas, Vegas is big, right? But Vegas is like mm-hmm. all about, all about it. So I saw the Women's Flat Track Roller Derby um, Association, had this conference. I'm like, I'm going to go to that because I'm like, there's got to be, this is a sport, right? Like there's got to be more out there. So when I saw it, I saw people from around the world, around the U S around the world come to Las Vegas. And, and it was all about roller derby. And I was like, Holy shit. Why is this not in Des Moines? I'm like, why are we not doing this in Des Moines? Because this is this is not just like this where you see it, you know, you saw it back in the day on a, a, a bank track and it's a lot of theatrics, you know, and a lot of like WWE kind of style. And and that was like, that was not what roller derby was that I saw. <clears throat> so I came back and I said, you know what, I, if you build it, they will come. If there's nothing here right now, you got to do it because I'm not, I don't want to miss out on something like this. So in 2009, I decided to capitalize on that opportunity to to build something that was going to be a household name that people were going to come and it was going to be something that they went to on Friday nights. And it was going, I wanted to get back to the community as well. So that's kind of the timeline into roller derby for me. So how, how was the recruiting process? Like for like, you said you, you had to build a team, right? Mm-hmm. So how did you, well, I you know, how did you go and how did you recruit? So what were you what- looking for? I was looking for, I was looking for people who, people who want to be a part of something greater than themselves. And that was my mission. That was part of my mission statement to build a community and to be a part of something greater than ourselves. And so back then, I mean, I shouldn't say back then because people still Twitter and I don't Twitter anymore necessarily, but (laughs) Twitter was a thing back then. So I knew, I knew that if I wanted to make this a legitimate sport here in Des Moines, I needed skaters, but I needed volunteers 
and then I needed like people who could produce our bouts, right? Our, our games. Um, in flat track roller derby, if you just had a large enough space, you can you can put down lines of what the what the track is going to be. And so I knew I needed those components. So what I did was I went on Twitter, right? And I and I, I used social media. Um, I went back to that publication that you know talked about roller derby that I saw, you know, a couple years prior. And I promoted the crap out of the Des Moines Derby Games. And I, 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 my very first MC was, um, his name is Jeremy Binghamton, but he was on Star 102, he's on Star 102.5, he's Luke Matthews. And I was like, I need him for our games. I need him to be able to tell the story of what's happening on, on the rink to people who have never seen roller derby before. So I recruited him. I recruited, um, people who were interested and literally I asked them to come and come to my basement. So I was like, we're going to have a meeting. It's going to be at my house. We're going to be in my basement and I'm going to show you what roller derby is. And I want to get you excited about it. So that's literally how I started the Des Moines Derby Day. So you tell us. You mentioned... oh, sorry. Go ahead, sorry, John. Quick, quick question. Cause you mentioned flat track. And could you explain that versus like what it's different than what roller derby was back in like the seventies and eighties, right? Because that was more on a that's a bank track. Yep. So so think about bank track. You have to have a place that houses that because you just can't build it every Friday night. You know, right. so so in order to 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 get leagues or teams up quicker, you just you needed just a, like a, a space. So we used um our very first bout was at Valair Ballroom. So it was just a concert space became too small. We sold out our very first bout. We're like, we need to go, we need to move, right? We, people are coming, we need to move. So then we, we um, went to a larger location where it's just, it was just concrete. Right. Oh. And mm. we just put down lines of the track. Oh, wow. And, okay. um, <clears throat> and so you just needed that. So that's the difference between the bank track and the flat track. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Wow. Thank you. For so, for those who don't know roller derby, just give the quick overview of what it is and how you win and compete. Um, so the the best way I can say it's 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 a mix of it's a mix of football, rugby, rugby, and um, so you've got you've got four defenders, right? Everybody's playing defense at the same time, right? So then you have these things called jams, and they happen every three minutes, or they can get called out. You can you can stop the jam early if you get the lead the lead lead jammer. So so you've got these four on each team. You start out at the line, and then you've got two people who are our jammers, and these are the people that score points. And they're usually designated with a star on their cap, so you know who they are. And basically, these two these two jammers are trying to get through this scrum of people, right? And and once they pass them, these are the points now they score of every defender that they pass. So then they'll go back around. They get through again. They'll they'll score these many points. So you can go up to three minutes, or the person who gets out of that the the jam the jammer who gets out of the basically scrum the first the first can call off the jam. So you can see how strategy then comes into play. You can see you know the the, the basic the football and and rugby aspect of it all. You basically you don't want that jam the other team's jammer to get through, and you also want to help yours get through to score points. So at the end. Who's, whoever's got the most points and what's it what's the time limit on like a, a contest like how long does it last is it periods is it one set time i don't know if they've changed it now but it used to be 20 minute bouts or 20 oh. minute halves 
Okay. Okay. Cool. Wow. So did you, were there other teams around all of Iowa or did you guys travel to play? Tell us a little bit we, about that. We did travel. We did travel. So you can, you can become a league by starting it on your own, but then you can be a certified league by the women's flat track derby association that governs then all of, all of the ones that are, are certified. You have to qualify for, you have to meet certain criteria in order to, to become certified, a certified league. So there's teams that are out there that are close to you. So, you know, who weren't flat track, uh, who weren't certified. So there's an Iowa City team. There's a, you know, there's a Cedar Falls or Cedar Cedar Rapids team. There's a Sioux City team. Um, Omaha is obviously close. Some of those were actually certified leagues as well. But you can kind of see, you know, you can mm. go anywhere that has, that had roller derby. But in order for you to qualify for nationals, once you become certified, you have to play a excuse me, other certified leagues. So we'd have to travel. There, there's just no other team in, you know, this, that close to not, to not, to travel. Yeah. So did you become a certified team? We did. We did. Right. You know, the, the funny part is that I didn't realize how much this would blow up. I knew, I knew, I knew it was exciting, right? Like Derby was super exciting. I just didn't know how quickly we would grow and we grew really quickly. And, you know, we had the, uh, we were fortunate enough to be kind of mentored by the Omaha team that had been around for a few years that was certified. And um, I said, well, maybe in year two, we'll go after certification. Well, in year one, we already needed to make a second team. <clears throat> we, you know, and everybody's like, we have already, we, we've met this criteria. Why aren't we going for it? And I was like, well, fuck. Yeah, let's go for it, you know? And we did. And that was like, that was super exciting for us because, you know, you needed to meet this criteria in order to, to, to be part of this, you know, greater league to make it to national X, Y, Z. But um, yeah, so we were fortunate enough to, to be able to do that within, within two years. Just, just curious, what was the name of your team? My team, the yeah. Des Moines Der Derby Dames. And then our second team um, was the Crash Test Dolls. The Des Moines Derby Dames? Des Moines Derby. And then what was, then what was the second one? Crash test dolls. The crash test like dolls, like the crash yeah. test dummies. Yeah. Like, the, oh, oh, yeah. We'll okay. play on so, that. And, and, and that was Des Moines. That was Des Moines as well, right? Des Moines right. Crash test. What was yeah. really fun is that we actually had our fans vote and, and submit team names. And, oh. and, then, and then it got voted on. So, I mean, honestly, the coolest thing I've done in my life was, was create the Des Moines Derby Dames and, and what we were able to do, we, you know, every, every bout, I, I made it a mission to, to give 10% of our proceeds of our bouts back to a charity. So our, our bouts were always tied to a charity. Um, we had sponsors all over Des Moines, you know, that, like that, that helped us, you know, with what, 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 what we needed. Um, but it just, it was the coolest thing I've ever done. Yeah, it it sounds like it, and I know COVID, you know, threw a wrench in just about everything. But is the are the is this league still around? Is it still going? So we had we we merged with another league that formed after after we formed, and there's still derby around. It's not nearly the derby that the Des Moines Derby Dames was, but the thing I think you need to keep in mind as well is like all volunteer run. So when yeah. I was doing it, this is, that was like a full-time job and it's, it's a league run by volunteers and to, to keep that up was difficult to, to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, that is, that's extremely impressive. Um, what you were able to accomplish there, um, and, and bring that team to life. 
So, you know, kind of shifting gears here, uh, you know, another thing interesting, you come from a very non-traditional family. Um, and I, I just curious what kind of adversity and challenges does that create for you guys? Yeah. And when you mean non-traditional families, clarify that for me. You're, you're in a same sex relationship, right? With your wife right. and you have children. Um, so, you know, we've come a long way as a society, but I'm sure there's still adversity out there surrounding oh, that. 100%. I'm a walking, I'm a walking adversity <laughs> poster per child because I'm a woman, number one, I'm loud, number two, and I'm, and I'm gay, number three, you know? So all of those things are just working against me in society period, you know? And I, um, I think the biggest, the biggest thing for me when it comes to adversity, I never look at it as adversity because I, for me, I just, I don't see things as limits. You know, I, I don't, I don't have limits because I feel like anything that I really, I want to do, I could do it if I put my, put my heart and my energy, you know, in it. So I guess, I guess for me, that would be overcoming maybe some, and maybe a fear of someone's judgment, right? I mean, as the older that I get, the the real less that I have with that, and and that's something that I want to continue to teach our children too. Is that like, I just I'm glad you asked that question. I literally just had a talk with my stepdaughter tonight about about that, and it's like you got to show up who you are and be unapologetic for it. And and for me, like growing up. I never wanted to be the fact that I was, you know, <clears throat> that I was loud, get in my way. You know, the fact that I was 4'11", get in the way. It got in the way of basketball, but, you know, that is what it is. Can't change that. Um, but, you know, never let those things get in your way. So adversity, I feel like, can be overcome if you want to continue to work at it. And that's something that I will always continue to work at. You know, I show up who as who I am. And if someone has something about it, like that's like, that's not on me. You know what I mean? I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to be who I am. So, you know, will there be challenges or has there been challenges? I, I believe so, but I only make them, you know, make them part of my life and, and affect my life if I allow it to. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's a great answer for sure. Um, I love I love what you said, you know, what you had mentioned, what you said to your stepdaughter about you don't have to apologize for anything, you know, because I, I myself growing up again with my parents and just always felt like, you know, what they had kind of passed down to me was, you know, again, going back to this is in our land, this is in our home. And if you make a mistake, you, yeah, you, you do got to apologize. You do got to say, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. And and all that stuff. So it, it's nice to, you know, to hear you say, um, you know, you don't have to apologize, right? I mean, I wish my parents would have said that to me as a kid. I think my life would have probably gone in a different direction. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know about you, Co, but my parents didn't talk about feelings. That's just not oh, what we correct. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's just not our culture, you know? And yeah, don't talk about it. Yeah. Don't talk about so, anything. Yeah. So, so growing, you know, emotional intelligence is self-work, right? That's something that, you know, I realize I grew my own self-awareness of like being able to, you know, sometimes, you know, hug people when I, you know, when I feel like I want to hug them yeah. or like tell, tell them how I feel, because that, that is something in our culture that we just didn't get from our parents. You know, we didn't. I, I remember as a kid, now I'm the youngest of seven, right? And I remember... As a kid, I 
we went to school and I was in grade school and the teacher talked about, you know, tell your family you love them and all that stuff, right? And I went home and I said to my brothers and sisters, like, I love you guys. <laughs> and they just almost, I swear, like, they looked at me like, what is wrong with you, kid? You know, it's like, we don't talk about that stuff, you know? I would say that, and, and that is something that um, if I didn't have sports and had other influences in my life, like coaches or teachers or any sort of mentors that I have, or have had, um, that's a behavior that I didn't necessarily learn at home. Mm -hmm. It's it's a behavior that I um, learned from other people by just being around them, ha being having the ability to like play sports, right? And then yeah. like have some acceptance, you know, as a, a, a Lao American that, you know, I am just who I am and I happen to be good at sports. And then, you know, there's there's some privilege that comes with that, right? So I was privileged enough to have these opportunities to be surrounded by these people who can influence me on a greater level. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah, that's cool. So if you had one shot with Co and I and to give us some <laughs> life coaching advice, because God knows we could use it, right, Co? Um, <laughs> yeah. what, what life coaching advice would you give us? Oh, I mean, it would probably be what I just said, you know, be unapologetic and be be you as soon as you hide yourself i mean it you're you're living you're living unauthentically and when you live an authentic and and genuine life being unapologetically you nothing nothing's going to be able to to bring you down from that it, um, unless you give your power away to people and once you give your power away to people to affect you in those ways you've lost you've lost your own power and and you're the only one that can give it away so don't so don't just don't do it it's harder it's easier said than done right it's easier said than done because society and you know and and and, and pressure and in life sometimes but if you continue it's a continue you have to continue to work at it you know you're always going to have change is the only thing that's constant in this world so if you if you're constantly fighting this change and not knowing how to show up in this world it's going to be a little bit harder for you but there's always a way to figure that out yeah one, one of my mentors told me nobody can take anything away from you unless you give it away so yeah i like that yeah well that's really cool well co before we wrap up here anything else from a lie um no, no, nothing I can think of off the top of my head that you didn't have any questions already. Yeah. So, Malai, where can people follow you? Um, you can probably follow me on Instagram. It's the Full Pursuit Coach. Um, that is my that is my Instagram handle. Like I said, I don't Twitter as much any, anymore, unfortunately. But I would say follow me on that. I'm, I'm usually pretty active on that. Yeah, there you go, everybody. Follow Malai, the Full Pursuit Coach. We'll post a link to her profile in the show notes for sure. But hey, um, great interview, Malai. We really appreciate coming on, telling your journey from refugee child to D1 athlete to founding that roller derby team. Uh, quite a quite an accomplishment for sure. Thanks so for with that, yeah, no, we well, appreciate yeah, you being I, on. I, I guess, John, one last question: what, What's in the future? What's in the future for you, Malai? The world is my oyster, man. Like something's yeah. going to come up that I'm going to be like, oh, I want a part of that, you know, but right now I think my focus is on, you know, I turned 40 in a couple of weeks. So, you know, that's like a pivotal moment in life, I suppose, but. Happy know, birthday. Um, if you don't get a chance to say that. <laughs> Thank you. 
I just want to continue to make an impact on the world. And, you know, recently completing my, my my master's in mental health therapy, I just passed my licensure exam. So I'm waiting for all of that to really, you know, go through, but just to continue to make an impact on people, whether that be my profession or whether that just be who I am and give people that, you know, that uh, ability to see there's nothing to be afraid of if you just, if you be unapologetic of you. So that's what's in my future is just to continue to be me and capitalize on opportunities that I feel passionate about that can make an impact on people. Awesome. Right. Well, thank yeah, you, everybody. Thank you. It was a great, great interview. So definitely thank you. Thank you for coming on and being our guest. Yeah, you bet. Thank you so much, guys. The C4 Podcast is brought to you by the Lao American Sports Hall of Fame. Visit us on the web at laoamericansports.com, celebrating the first, inspiring the next.